Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Saurabh Vishnupat, professor of law and engineering at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Jordana Goodman, visiting clinical assistant professor of law at Boston University. We'll be discussing her new article, Misattribution, How Authorship Credit Contributes to the Gender Gap, recently accepted for publication in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology. Jordi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So this uh, this paper, I think, is a terrific example of a, a cause and effect story where the cause, you know, claiming credit for something is easy to grasp, and the effects, which are gender gaps in various segments of uh, the legal profession, the economy, society, uh, are also easy to grasp. And what's less obvious is the mechanism in the middle that connects the cause with the effect. And it seems to me that that's what you're really bringing to light here. So could I ask you to begin by explaining what kind of authorship you're focused on here and what appropriate credit looks like in that context? Yeah, so so for the purpose of this paper, I was looking at authorship in uh, the form of um, attorneys who write office actions and uh, write applications on patents. Uh, the reason why I wanted to kind of focus on this is because that's my background. I started as a patent practitioner writing office action responses and writing applications for um, scientists and, and inventors and engineers. And I wanted to see if uh, people in the field that I practiced got equal credit when they started and, and continued to have equal credit on their contributions to these um, works as they progressed in their in their career, and I was able to divide it by by gender. Hmm. So let's uh, let's then talk about what appropriate credit looks like, right? One can imagine being named on the patent as attorney of record is one form of credit. Uh, being having you know the authority within your law firm to sign the office action itself, uh, maybe another form of credit. Um, there are sort of various ways in which you could be attributed, and your work might be recognized. Um, so, what are the what are the ways in which people are recognized and are not recognized in um, in the context that you're describing? Absolutely. So, I think what I was concentrating on was public recognition. That is, when you've signed the office action response or you've signed the application at the bottom, indicating that you were the attorney of record, that you were the person who kind of reviewed the um, the contents of the application or office action response and that you're kind of allowing that to go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Um, This credit, though, on patent applications and office action responses goes far beyond who's signing it. In in a law firm, um, somebody can get credit by signing um, an email to a client, uh, having kind of a back and forth there. Uh, They could get credit by interacting with the patent examiner. Um, at the United States Patent and Trademark Office and, and having a conversation with them. Um, there could be internal recognition uh, by your partner at, uh, let's say, a, uh, a meeting with partners and associates saying that you did a particularly good job of formulating an argument. Um, all of these are different forms of credit. Some of them are, are, of course, easier to track than others. And and for me, the easiest way to track, and I think I think the most significant to somebody's uh, career would be this public recognition that is who signs at the bottom, because not only can it be a predictor of um, um, you know whether or not you've you've contributed or an indicator of whether or not you contributed to the work in the first place, um, but it's also used if uh, an attorney were to switch jobs. Um, 
potentially to indicate that they were the lead um, on on the project. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. Um, now, this this vision, this framework of authorship, uh, as you've described it, and of corresponding credit, as you've described it, um, relies on and, and contributes to a variety of different legal domains, as you discuss in the paper. So let's let's turn to that a bit. Um, you begin with intellectual property, and certainly IP has strongly developed systems of allocating uh, attribution. So in within IP doctrine, what would you say uh, you find relevant about that doctrine for this project? Well, I think that there are a few mechanisms in intellectual property law in general that indicate to me that credit is important. Um, first, you know, in, in, in copyright law, we, we learned that uh, there's a different length of um, copyright uh, protection granted to somebody if they put their name um, as the author on the work out in the world, regardless, uh, uh, as opposed to somebody who is um, writing or puts forth an anonymous work. Um, we learn in patent law that if the inventor isn't named, that the patent could be considered invalid uh, because you have incorrect inventorship. Um, and, and there are other kind of mechanisms in, in different areas of, I guess, copyright and copyright adjacent fields like uh, the Writers Guild um, um, that, that make sure that even if there isn't a specific law um, in intellectual property that requires somebody to put uh, attribution on a document, that uh, they will still get credit either through uh, negotiations with unions, um, individual contracts, or just kind of private ordering enforcement. Okay, so let's uh, let's turn to contracts and private ordering as well, because that's sort of you know uh, the the second and third parts of your your discussion. And I was really uh, I really enjoyed sort of seeing how those uh, adjacent, as you put it, um, uh, domains really intersect with IP because, you know, for those of us who work in, uh, one or other uh, field of IP, the doctrine certainly tells us, here's the inventor, here's how we know who they are, here's who the, the author is for copyright and so on. Um, but it, it's easy to overlook and, and sort of harmful to overlook that there is this private ordering and, and contractual web. So in, in a setting like the WGA or the, the Writers Guild or, um, any other you know, industry uh, setting, what sorts of contractual arrangements um, might we see that do anything from directly obligate people to, you know, sort of give credit where credit is due or um, impose norms or recognize current practice as it already exists? What are some of those uh, mechanisms that, uh, that we see? Oh sure. So so there's uh, I think one of the easiest ones to kind of imagine are the credits at the end of a movie. Um, so the Writers Guild of America has a collective bargaining agreement, usually um, uh, between uh, the writers and then the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. It basically says credits for screen authorship shall be given only pursuant to the terms of and in the manner prescribed in theatrical schedule A, which is like this thirty-page addendum. Um, and not only do they have this kind of requirement of listing somebody, but they will also have uh, mechanisms for dispute resolution uh, through interpretation of kind of different different manuals. And, and this would manifest not only in um, 
attribution in general, that is that you appeared, but the order that you appeared, the name that you're using, um, the number of people that appear kind of on your same line, the size of the text, all of that can be there. Um, um, and, and of course, we also have, you know, VARA, uh, which does have uh, some kind of dissemination and ownership component. Um, and in some cases, the contract can also go to that level that is not only requiring credit, but also allowing the person who is authoring the piece um, um, some kind of control over dissemination and ownership of the piece itself. Yeah, so VAR is an interesting case, right? So this is the, the Visual Artist Rights Act, um, and it's uh, really an exception to intellectual property. Most IP doctrine, as you point out in the paper, uh, generally doesn't allow the inventor or author, as the case may be, to control dissemination. Um, so it, it sounds like what you're saying is contracts go well beyond that and can be as granular as, um, you know, uh, specifying these additional bundles uh, in the, in the or these are, excuse me, additional sticks in the bundle of, of ownership rights uh, and dissemination rights. So, so then what about um, uh, attribution norms uh, in private ordering, whether they be sort of ethical or industry practice or whatever the case may be, what kinds of norms um, do you think are relevant for us to consider here? Well, I think the norms really center on the idea that authorship and this credit is imperative for um, advancement in, in clinical and, and academic careers. Um, and, and that there is recognition in private ordering that there's a power dynamic component sometimes between the people who have the power to disseminate information and disseminate works and the people who are actually doing the work. And so what I think is, is really interesting is um, in, in organizations like, like the NIH and, and um, uh, different um, scientific papers, there's, there's this formal taxonomy called uh, credit uh, where journals require not only the names of each author, but then specific documentation of the type of contribution of individual researchers. Um, and although this is this is kind of an imperfect um, uh, mechanism, uh, these resources can really help um, to reduce the length and frequency of authorship disputes because it requires everybody in this space uh, to put forth not only their name, but how they contributed to the project and kind of agree on that before the, the project goes out. Um, and I think that's really important to consider, given that this isn't based in law, this isn't really even based formally in contract, but it's just based on on a recognition that there was a power dynamic issue, that people weren't getting credit for uh, the work that they did, and that um, uh, the scientific community kind of is, is working together to to try to fix it um, through through their own mechanisms. Yeah. Now, this uh, this system credit that you're referring to, the contributor role taxonomy, um, this is less than ten years old, right? I mean, we've we've had scientific research as a discipline, and and these norms have been evolving for hundreds of years since you know, the sort of post enlightenment rise of. Uh, of scientific research in the lab, as it were. Um, has there been, uh, to your knowledge, uh, a concerted push behind the development of this taxonomy? Or is it something that, you know, uh, the, the scientific community was sort of getting out in front of any formal calls for, for change? Which which came first? Oh, I'm I'm not entirely sure on the entire history of how kind of credit came to be. But I'm sure that there were disputes for decades, just just given kind of my experience, the experience of my coworkers, um, 
um, I think I think credit really came at at a time um, where women and people of color in science were really finding their voice and saying enough is enough. Um, um, and graduate students were being constantly overlooked. I think that when credit came to be, I also remember that there were quite a few media pieces, and there still are, of um, students explaining how they were left off of papers. And I think the rise of the use of the internet in order to kind of disseminate authorship disputes more more widely than just happening within their institutions um, really kind of spurred this change. So, so I suppose it was both that um, the number of authorship disputes were becoming, I guess, more more publicly known. Um, and I think this was in part trying to get ahead of the curve in order to reduce the authorship disputes that were on the rise in, you know, 2010, 2013. Yeah. Um, uh, there's shortly after your discussion of credit, uh, there's also a, a wonderful... Um, example uh, from from the world of professional politics, right? The the Obama White House and uh, Emily Crockett's excellent piece in Vox, uh, explaining how um, the the women in the the, the White House uh, outer circle and the inner circle of decision making uh, engaged in this the strategy amplification. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah. So amplification was this really interesting uh, meaning strategy. Uh, that the women in the White House under President Obama kind of adopted. So basically, when a woman made a key point um, in in a meeting, other women would repeat it and giving credit to its author. So um, well done, you know, Jordy. I really like that that piece um, uh, that that you were mentioning. Oh, you know, Sally, that's such a great idea. Um, and and repeating not only the idea but the person associated with that, especially women. Um, and in order to uh, uh, kind of perpetuate this this norm that a woman could contribute a good idea and that they should get credit for the idea that they contributed. So women ensured that each other's voices weren't ignored by essentially forcing the men in the room to recognize the contribution and deny those men the chance to claim their idea as their own. That is, they would repeat the same idea, um, but not give the person credit and and might end up with the credit at the end because they said it more forcefully. Um, and so this fight um, resulted in women gaining parity with men in Obama's inner circle during his second term in a way that they weren't present in his first term. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's the sort of thing that, you know, a fairly uh, progressive uh, president and, you know, somebody who made uh, conscious efforts to, uh, to be as equitable, you know, as any president in history had been, uh, and there were still these entrenched practices. So the idea that intentionality and, and strategy could could uh, change that was, was a really powerful example. Um, okay, so let's turn now to, to real-world effects, uh, because these are some, some terrific anecdotes of real-world effects. But the focus of your paper, of course, is a little bit different. So how does this play out, um, not in you know academic science or, or public policy, but uh, in law firms and legal practice? settings. Yeah. So in, in the law firm structure, I think, I think that that's a, a pretty good place to kind of start is that you have, generally you have associates 
um, either junior and, and mid-level, and then, and then you'll have partners. Um, and the, the partner structure kind of, uh, helps manage the firm and they're in charge of the hiring and firing and promotion of, of people within the firm. So you start as a summer associate, the summer associate then, um, um, generally goes to their internship and then might be hired to the firm. And then the graduate will then join the law firm as a junior associate and then receive yearly promotions until they become a senior associate or, or partner. Um, now, along this path, of course, not everybody is going to be promoted or compensated equitably. There's there's a lot of really great studies kind of showing that women aren't going to make it to partner track at the same rate as their um, male peers. Um, but what I think is is more interesting uh, to to look at is whether or not women are getting equitably treated when they're at the law firm. Um, that is, is the law firm doing absolutely everything it can to equally give work and critique uh, to all of the members within its law firm in order to ensure that they could succeed equally, if not for external societal pressures um, that likely contribute to this gap? Um, and so to do that, you need to look at two things. One is, are you giving women and men equal work? And then two, are they getting equal credit for the work that you distributed? Um, and that's and that's really what I thought would be an interesting piece to kind of start with in, in law firms in general, but then in patent law specifically. Absolutely. So the you know you refer at one point to the opacity of decision making and and the hierarchy of law firms, and that certainly makes uh, makes it tough to bring the the empirical effects of this uh, into the light. Uh, but one of the things you, and I think this is a particularly useful, um, you know, sort of cognitive mechanism to to explain to the reader the the credit snowball. Um, the the more the work you do gets recognized, the better the work will be that you get later on. And so it's easy to point later to, hey, this guy over here did you know lots of great work, and and this woman who started at the same time did not. Um, and if you if your analysis is as superficial as that, um, it, it you know one might very easily dismiss legitimate claims of uh, of bias and inequity and so on. So, can you say a bit about how the credit snowball um, in patent work specifically might uh, might play out from the time of say an entry level associate to you know a, a a managing associate, a senior associate who's about to make the leap to to partner? Sure. Um, and I think that this, this credit snowball, you know, when we, when we get to gender really does base itself on, on two main economic kind of points. You have, uh, what, what's called the Matthew effect that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And then you have a corresponding Matilda effect, which is just kind of a bias against acknowledging achievements of women scientists. But here in general, it would be kind of women attorneys. So essentially you have two associates entering the firm at the, exact same um, uh, experience level. Um, and, you know, one person gets uh, uh, an office action response project at the same time another person gets an office action response project. So so they're, they're on equal footing when they start off, both in terms of education and experience and in terms of the first assignment. Um, but then let's say that uh, uh, one of the um, assignments uh, is, uh, is Given, uh, I guess, three 
three review sessions instead of two review sessions by the partner because they don't believe that the attorney who's working on it as a junior was actually particularly competent. Um, and so this delay in the um, in the review process and, and kind of having a few more hours done on this may create a small gap in the next opportunity that came along to write an office action response or uh, to write uh, an application on a patent. Um, this small gap might also accumulate over time over several office action responses, over several um, um, applications to the point where uh, somebody isn't is going to be able to have a meeting with a client, maybe two or three months before the other person gets a meeting with the client. Uh, somebody's going to be able to answer the phone a bit quicker than somebody else. And, and over time, this manifests in, in somebody being launched, this, this small um, advantage early on uh, that somebody got to uh, uh, got to work on more office action responses earlier on in their career um, can really help to bolster their um, uh, how how they are able to interact with clients later uh, and their recognition in the firm uh, as a consequence of that. That maybe the client is going to recognize them a bit earlier as somebody who is competent and their primary attorney, and will then start referring other clients to them specifically. Uh, which can also um, increase their uh, increase their prestige in the firm, not only in terms of the likelihood that they're not going to let get, get let go, but potentially also fast track them to partner. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting um, sort of account of how this would proceed, right? Because the the starting point, as you mentioned, um, the the additional review that uh, that has this sort of time delay effect. Um, one might imagine, hey, the the person getting greater uh, amounts of feedback might be at an advantage, but it's a, as you point out, it's a double-edged sword. The delay that results from that and the motivation uh, that that shapes the form of feedback that comes may actually end up being more uh, more harm than good, or at least more harm than meets the eye. Um, and I was I was also interested that you you controlled and, and I appreciated that you controlled. Uh, for them being the, the 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 similarly situated subjects, right, the man and the woman being on equal footing, because so much of the dialogue about uh, gender disparity versus gender equity uh, in the law and in other fields uh, tends to focus on the so-called pipeline problem, and this is so particularly true in in patent law, where you not only need to have a law degree to be a patent attorney, but also if you want to do patent prosecution, have to uh, to be uh, trained in a, a STEM discipline, uh, science, you know, uh, uh, technology, engineering, math, these sorts of things. And um, so the law has a, uh, a tendency, at least uh, at times, to sort of push the blame off onto the, the scientific disciplines and say, well, look, there just aren't as many uh, women in X, Y, or Z field. And so when they come to the law and become patent attorneys, of course, there's going to be uh, a gap. It's not our fault, or it's a, at least it's not as much our fault. And and by controlling uh, for that effect, uh, I, I think you're very helpfully cabining uh, what can often be a distraction. Thanks. Yeah, I, I I think it's it's important to not discount that there are many reasons why there is a gap between men and women entering the field of um, patent law, uh, namely as as you just spoke about that. Um, 
women are not graduating with science degrees at the same rate as men in certain fields. Um, and others, women, women certainly do outpace men. Um, there's, there's a few really interesting articles kind of coming out now. I believe Sean too has, has a really interesting article on, on how this works in, uh, the biology and, and health law space, um, where women are entering law school at rates comparable to men, um, in, in certain fields of, of science. But certainly when we get to patent law and when we look at who's practicing for a few years, we notice that there's a gap between men and women. And so I thought that it was important to say that let's, let's take that as the benchmark that let's say if, if there are 20% of women at the law firm, um, as associates, then 20% of the associate signatures on office action responses and, um, uh, applications should be women. Um, and, and that's where I started because I think it's important to recognize that we have, we do have a leaky pipeline. We have a very long pipeline of issues when it comes to, um, equity for race and gender. And then at the same time, it's important to recognize that everybody can play a part in plugging a certain amount of holes in that leaky pipeline. And I think it's important to look at the holes that law firms specifically can help to plug rather than just kind of push it off on, on society as a whole. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So before we turn to the, the findings, which, you know, for me as an empiricist were, were certainly among the most interesting parts of the paper. Um, I did also want to um, uh, touch on one uh, important uh, caveat and, and nuance, which is often lost even in some of the best uh, empirical work on uh, gender disparity and gender equity. And that is, of course, that uh, the gender is uh, is not binary. And so could you say a bit about um, how methodologically you uh, you addressed that, uh, that fact and the, the sort of social implications of your work arising from it? Yeah, so so I, I acknowledge in my paper um, um, and and in my work in general as an empiricist that gender is fluid. That although I'm speaking in the binary of of men and of women, that I want to acknowledge that that these are um, inadequate to explain um, and fully um, articulate underrepresentation of certain groups of people in law. Um, as an empiricist, I'm limited by the data that I can use um, and that's available to me. And right now, most of the algorithms that we have um, are, are done mainly in binary. That is, they identify somebody as a man or as a woman based on their name. Um, but in order to compensate for that, uh, not only do I have acknowledgments in my paper, both in, in, in my hypotheticals, especially acknowledging the existence of people who do not identify as either a man or a woman. Um, but also I ran, sorry, I, I ran this at, at a de novo test using single factor and two factor testing. I had a significance level of 0.05 and, um, uh, population sample size confidence level of, of 95%, meaning any, any margin of error that I found um, was 5%. That's standard in a lot of empirical studies, but what we're doing now um, in partnership with Herity Analytics 
is that where possible, um, we're rerunning the data at a 97% confidence level. And the reason why we're rerunning it at a 97% confidence level is to acknowledge that this was originally done in binary and uh, uh, this this compensates for the errors that would misgender somebody who would not identify in binary. Okay, well, that makes sense. Um, okay, so let's let's turn now to you know the sort of broader uh, sketches of your your methodology and of course the findings. Um, you mentioned Heredity Patent Analytics. This is um, a, a, uh, a sort of group within a law firm. Uh, Heredity and Heredity that uh, does a lot of terrific uh, empirical work uh, in the world of patent law. So uh, could you say a bit about where the data comes from, what role Heredity played in it, and um, and how you're planning to, to sort of build up the data set, not only for, for this paper, but for a number of papers to follow? Yes. So um, I was very lucky to meet Elaine Spector and Rocky Bernstein, and, and they are partnering with me to uh, um, really analyze the data set, um, which is uh, over 200,000 patents and, and patent applications and office actions from 2016 to 2020. Um, um, Rocky is, is a particularly gifted um, uh, data scientist and uh, has, has really helped me to um, look through the, um, the, the data at this time in order to be able to code not only for subject matter, but also code for uh, the experience of patent practitioners who are signing uh, these patent applications by using their registration numbers. So if somebody passed the patent bar, that is the bar that allows them to practice before the United States Patent and Trademark Office um, uh, in, in 1995, uh, they might have a registration number that's in the 45,000 range. If somebody passed in 2014, which is when I passed, they might have a registration number that's around the 72,000 range. And so basically you can use this as an indicator for how long somebody has been practicing. Um, and so we can sort people into these, these buckets, um, um, kind of describing um, how long that they've, they've worked in, in patent law um, and whether they should be judged as an associate, a junior associate, a senior associate, a partner, or or somebody who's who's kind of been around for thirty or more years in in industry, um, we were able to really get this this great set not only from a USPTO database, but then we were also able to use optical character recognition in order to identify people who had actually signed the physical papers associated with these patent applications, um, which really helps to get a, a, a good granular level of who is getting the credit um, instead of just relying on USPTO databases um, for um, kind of machine-coded information. Okay, so that's the, um, that's the sort of data set of uh, office actions, the content itself being evaluated. Now, there's obviously metadata associated with these uh, these things, the most important of which uh, is probably the technology in which the invention uh, that the patent covers uh, falls. So the USPTO, as, as uh, some may know, is divided up into a number of technology centers, right? 
TC1600 is biotechnology and organics, 2100 computer architecture, and, and so on like this. So the reason to focus on technology is that gender disparity and gender equity vary by technology. Many, many folks have shown this. Um, so could you give us a sense of which uh, technology centers in the USPTO have the greatest uh, shares of unique female attorneys, patent application attributions, and, and office action attributions, and so on like this? Sure. So so Technology Center 1600, which is the biotechnology and organics, had the highest number of unique uh, female attorneys. That is, uh, the uh, number of attorneys who had signed at least one office action response or one patent application from 2016 to 2020, with about 31% of all attorneys in that sample um, um, being being women. Um, and 1700 chemical and materials engineering, which is the subject matter that I practiced in was um, was far behind, um, but but um, much higher than than most other technology centers at twenty uh, percent of unique female attorneys. Um, others, other technology centers, uh, uh, twenty one hundred, which is computer architecture, software, and information security, um, communications, computer networks. There's semiconductors. All of those technology centers were around 14 percent. Um, uh, unique female attorneys. So only about half of the the life sciences. That's, I mean, life sciences being the highest is great, but even that, as you said, is only thirty, you know, thirty one percent. So um, quite quite low. Um, let's uh, turn to the uh, the rates at which credit is uh, is given. So where attorneys were accredited author. Uh, on the office action, there are some uh, highly credited, the, the term of art, as you say, the highly credited patent attorneys. How do you define uh, that cohort? So so highly credited patent practitioners um, are uh, practitioners who had signed over 300 office action responses um, uh, in a given year. So from 2016, if if they're uh, if they signed over 300 office action responses, uh, they were considered a highly credited um, patent practitioner. And the reason why um, I call them a highly credited patent practitioner is because I did some qualitative research. That is, I talked um, to patent practitioners and asked them how long it took them uh, to write an office action response. And most of the time, excepting for those uh, uh, responses that were ghostwritten for them or given to them by by kind of a foreign associate or, or somebody who um, couldn't apply uh, directly to the patent office, most of the time it took them about four to eight hours um, of, of work to craft the office action response and send it out. So multiplying that by 300 gave me about 1,200 hours to 2,400 hours of work um, uh, that would be attributed to to their um, their signature, and that doesn't account for any um, client work that they've uh, you know kind of been been interfacing, talking on the phone with a client. It doesn't account for any um, applications that they wrote within the given year. It doesn't account for any um, uh, PTAB work. Uh, that they might have done throughout the year that was just office action responses. And so um, I thought that that was a pretty good number to start looking at people who 
may be putting their name on work that others did um, as uh, part of their uh, yearly uh, signature quota. Okay. All right. And so, and, and the 1200 to 2400 range, right? If you take, um, uh, I guess about 2000 to 2400 is uh, the, the range, last I checked anyway, of uh, the hourly billable target for, for most attorneys, at least at uh, you know, mid-sized or, or larger firms. So is it fair to say this would be about uh, somewhere between one half to to one hundred percent to fifty to one hundred percent of somebody's annual billable quota? Yes, easily. And and in some some law firms, especially in patent firms, the number uh, the the billable your yearly billable number might be uh, closer to the range of eighteen hundred to two thousand hours. Um, so it might even just just be over a hundred percent of the expected. Um, um, hours that you would you would need to kind of complete in a given year. Okay, I got you. So, okay, these these are the the folks then who are the highly credited uh, attorneys. How many were there um, who fit this criterion, and uh, and how what share of them were were women? Uh, so there were four hundred and two instances where an attorney was accredited author on over three hundred office action responses from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty, and um, twenty six were identified as female. Um, so in, in 2016, there were two female patent practitioners out of the 60 practitioners named in over 300 office action responses. Um, in 2017, I didn't find any women. Uh, I found only men um, uh, patent practitioners. And, and 2020 actually had the largest representation of female highly credited practitioners with about 10%. So that would be 20 female practitioners credited out of the group of 216 attorneys. Wow. So of the, um, the just year over year, you know, we, it seems like it was in the range of three to 6%. The most recently it was up to, to about 10%. Do you think that was, uh, uh, and I'm asking you to speculate now, because obviously we're still in it, but uh, did that strike you as a pandemic effect? It did to an extent. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting if, if we can continue this study through 2021 and 2022. Um, because I think with women being home um, more uh, uh, and and potentially equal to their partners, um, this this might have created a, a few different dynamics. First, I know that women everywhere, um, but at the law firm specifically, are more likely to do what's called office housework that is, you know, planning um, events, making sure that the office is set up properly for clients to come in. Um, and, and those events really weren't happening in 2020. So the time that female attorneys might have been spending um, uh, kind of on those office house, housework, non-credible, non-creditable billable hours um, might have shifted towards office action responses. Uh, the other thing might have been that because people were home, um, they didn't need to commute. And there are certainly studies that say that if a woman is in a heterosexual relationship and they're choosing um, um, between the two partners of, of where to live, um, that women um, typically live further from um, their uh, their office or place of work than their their male partner. Um, so this might have been a way to kind of manifest that equality by not having people commute. 
Um, and then the third is just if, if somebody is home and if somebody has a, a family and needs to take care of, of, of children, um, there might have been more equitable distribution of that housework, um, uh, of child work, uh, child care work between um, uh, partners um, at home because it was actually visible as opposed to kind of the invisible work of a teacher calling and, and asking to kind of take a student home um, um, and, and not being there to uh, to see how that manifests in somebody's life. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of partners had some, some very good um, discussions um, about kind of making sure that that's more equitable. Okay. So we've addressed, you know, briefly the, the technology dynamics, the, the um, highly credited uh, subset of, of attorneys. And, um, and so let me ask you now about the measure you have for experience, this uh, registration number cohorts, right? Every, if your registration number begins with, uh, in the 30,000 range, three zero followed by three digits versus begins with uh, three five, uh, you know, the, the 35,000 range, um, so 30 to 35, 35 to 40, 40 to 45, you've got all the way up to the current day, which is the 75,000 range. Um, these tell us the smaller your number, the more you've been in practice, the longer you've been in practice. And so controlling for experience, what is the average office action response rate uh, per attorney as between men and women? Yeah, so... so controlling for the experience level, um, men in every bracket had a higher office action response rate than women. Um, when you looked at female practitioners in the 75,000 plus bracket, so the new junior associates, um, the female practitioners averaged an attribution rate of 9.7 office action response attributions uh, between 2016 and 2020. And the male practitioners in the same bracket averaged an attribution of 14.2 office action response attributions, so about 50% more. But you notice over time um, that the, uh, the, the disparity between the male practitioners and the female practitioners grows. Um, and in more senior brackets, you can see the male practitioner being attributed 1.5 to 2.2 times more than their female practitioner equivalents. And remember, this this takes into account the number of men and women that were present. This is this is just per capita attribution. So it's the number of office action responses um, authored or or signed by men divided by the number of men in the sample versus the same metric for women. So that what that does is sort of forestall the um, the the pushback, the potential pushback that if women and men are dropping out of the labor force, the relevant labor market at different rates, that might be what's driving this. What you've done is controlled for that over, over the, the experience horizon. Is that right? Correct. Because you had to have at least one office action response attribution. That is, you had to sign at least one office action response to uh, uh, be counted in the sample at all. If there was no um, uh, signature found on any of the five years from um, somebody in in that um, uh, of that registration number, they they didn't count towards the general population, and so and so their number isn't there. 
um, I was also able to kind of redo the sample recently uh, to be able to break it down, not just over the five-year gap, but over one-year gaps. Um, and I noticed this tr- uh, uh, snowball, snowball trend existing even inter-bracket. That is, uh, you start with a small um, attribution gap in 2016 for those in registration bracket number 75,000 plus, And that number does grow over time um, from 2016 until 2020. Wow. So this is not just cross-sectional. It's also longitudinal over just the five-year window that you, that you collected data. Correct. Okay. Um, well, that's fascinating and a little depressing. <laughs> um, let's, let's turn now to what will hopefully be less depressing, what we can do about this. Um, you propose some, some regulatory interventions as well as some, some cultural ones. Um, what you know, sort of legal and regulatory reforms uh, do you think would be appropriate for us to to consider and pursue here? Well, I think I think the first thing to consider is that regardless of whether this is good data or bad data, it is data, um, and I think it's necessary data to be able to, as as we discussed earlier, hold hold people accountable for their actions and their contribution to the pipeline. And so I think that the the general norm should be to kind of put this data out there, um, um, not to say that a firm is doing better or worse because their metrics are better or worse, but just by putting the data out there, you're helping the situation by setting up a benchmark. Uh, I think it's important to consider a few of the reasons why it's important to kind of push towards equity. And the first pieces that I would like to to look at are are um, the ethical rules that it's unprofessional for an attorney to engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. And I think signing your name on behalf of somebody else's work would probably fall under that. Um, although Model Rule eight point four is really unlikely to prohibit all attorney conduct from this um, uh, resulting in in attribution bias. I still think that it's important to think about whether or not this is um, um, an attribution issue. Um, And so I think uh, it's it's important to to look at potentially amending the model rules um, in order to require attribution um, that is requiring attorneys that have direct supervisory authority, ensuring that everybody is given credit with the rules and of the tribunal in which they shall appear. Um, it's also important to look at those tribunals um, that is, you know, for example, the United States Patent and Trademark Office as an entity that could set the standard that not only would something be invalid because a um, inventor uh, didn't get properly attributed, or not only is there a problem, if an examiner isn't um, isn't properly recognized for their contribution in the office action and office action response kind of dialogue, um, but also promoting that the rightful attorney, that is the attorney who contributed the um, argument or the writing, should be credited somewhere on um, on the documents itself. Yeah, that, that part of the, the discussion was really interesting to me because the uh, this is a, a particularly, you know, a, a potentially complicated situation in which you have the the model rules on the one hand and specifically as implemented the, the rules of professional conduct of each state that govern the attorneys who work there, but also the overlapping jurisdiction of the USPTO, um, whose Office of Enrollment and Discipline dictates, you know, sort of 
the conduct of all people who who are admitted to practice there. So that that poses a you know a potential complexity. But uh, reading through your discussion, I got the sense that it might be uh, useful that there are two different authorities because one can can set the baseline for the other to follow, and and they can sort of learn and and take best practices from each other uh, rather than trying to go it alone. And, and so I was uh, I appreciated that uh, that discussion. Um, could you say uh, also? I think you mentioned something about the um, the the ways in which uh, the private ordering mechanisms of uh, the profession or of uh, of just the market, um, you know, client interactions, things like this. How can uh, can norms and and private ordering uh, be a useful complement uh, in this situation? Yeah. Well, I think. I think that firms have started to recognize the importance of, of this, this attribution of change. Um, so when I was speaking to an attorney and he worked at his, his first firm, um, he said that the default attribution strategy was just naming the partner whose client it was in, in all correspondence. But then this trend has started to change over time where partners will now allow other people to sign off, um, mainly other partners, but, but potentially other um, um, senior associates. And I think this can change quite quickly if law firms decided to just attribute their junior associates. Um, um, I, I think instead of teaching junior associates in um, in in law school, even as as, as law students and, and first year associates, to be good ghostwriters, I think it's important to teach them uh, that their name is going to go on the document, and so that they should be proud of uh, the writing that they have and, and giving them giving them more responsibility and and if not at least having the conversation with them about why they would write something that they didn't want uh, their their name associated um, associated with at least maybe by the second or third year of their of their careers um, because there's such a wide attribution gap among junior associates that law firms are particularly well positioned to address what might be a confidence gap either the confidence gap of uh, the partners in their associates or the gap of the confidence of the associates itself. Um, and I think, I think that even, even the claims that, um, it, it might be harmful to a junior associate's reputation, um, to, to put their names on there might be a bit, um, a bit misguided. Um, because I think it's important to acknowledge that junior associates are coming in with fresh ideas. Uh, that should be credited on on the work that they're being given. Terrific. Well, thank you, Jordy. This was an incredibly uh, rich and, and detailed look, and I certainly commend the the further empirical findings uh, of your paper to our, our listeners for for closer inspection. Um, the liner notes will include uh, uh, more detail about the paper, including the SSRN link where you can download the uh, the full draft. Uh, Jordy Goodman, thank you for joining me, and uh, I look forward to to seeing the the next paper in the series. Thank you so much.